points and uh, moving forward. So we wanted to illustrate just what Ratzon might mean when it comes to a get. And the fact that it seems to be more than other kinds of transactions require, but is it just more or is it different? And what we illustrated yesterday is the possibility that it's different. And we did that in the context. We used the discussion of the controversy, one of the main controversial points surrounding the contemporary Benjamin America prenup, which we ultimately attempted to defend, but uh, through that to explain how one of the controversial points is really at the center of the whole issue. So as we noted, the prenup involves a commitment to provide sustenance, to provide mizonos, as we call it, to one's wife as long as they remain married, and that if they are separated under certain conditions, so then it turns into a dollar a day sum, a number of dollars a day sum. And that was argued upon by some. There were those who had a number of objections, but perhaps the most serious of the objections is that this monetary aspect would make it into a get musa. Uh, there are other objections, such as the question of whether somehow this agreement encourages divorce. Uh, that's interesting to reflect upon in light of what we spoke about from the beginning of the year, and the question of is divorce an Aveira or a mitzvah or somewhere in between, and of course, it certainly depends on the circumstances. So, just for a second to talk about that, so yes, it may be true that the prenup encourages divorce in certain circumstances, but in those circumstances, in general, the marriage has already really ceased to function. So it certainly does seem to be the case that when that's the reality, so then when we considered at the opening week the question of whether Gerishin is a mitzvah or an avera, so in that context it certainly seems to be more in the mitzvah category. Now, of course, there are always subjective situations, and sometimes things are escalated too early, so it's not to close off that possibility, and it's important to educate exactly where things fit in and how exactly this process works, but for the most part, when the prenup is being employed, it is there to it is there to address a situation where it's hard to say that there's any remaining potential for that to be a productive marriage. And then in light of what we spoke about the first week, about how we emphasized that the whole notion of having Gittin before Kedushin is because perhaps Gittin can not only be a corrective to a bad marriage, but also maybe a warning and a concept that when internalized properly may prevent the marriage from going in that direction. So it's noteworthy also because there are those who complain about the prenup that ought to bring up divorce at the time of the wedding. It's not romantic. It's not uh, it's somehow going to cast a negative attitude, negative environment over it, so that's also very hard to understand, especially compared to the alternative. But also, that's essentially what the Ksuba does as well, and nobody worries about that. But we could say more than that, that not only is the benefit greater than that issue, but maybe one could even argue within the spirit of what we saw from some of the Makars at the beginning of the year, that this will strengthen the marriage by making it clear 
just how much there is to lose. And that's also something that has its own productive aspect. And in an additional sense, so one of the messages we've promoted in connection with the prenup is that committing to this is a gesture of respect and a message that the soon-to-be husband has concern for the well-being of the wife and respects her and everything that she would have to go through. So one also could sincerely argue that to the marriage there's nothing that's going to make a stronger statement of confidence and to build the foundation of the marriage than that kind of a gesture. So the concern that it casts a negative atmosphere on the marriage, so we certainly don't see so much of a basis to worry about that. Maybe other of them, maybe it will really very much go in the opposite direction. But even when it's taken a little bit more in a serious way that it will cause existing marriages to be rushed towards divorce, so hopefully that's not a concern either because it's going to be invoked, hopefully only in contexts where there really is a clear message that this is the better alternative. So those objections are not really ones we're going to spend so much time on. But the more serious objection, as we noted yesterday, is the question of, does this bring about a coerced get? So that, the premise, was based on two positions, both of which were disputed by Rishonin. Uh, what were the two positions? Help me out. Help me yesterday. Yes, Eric? That um, financial coercion is coercion. Right, very good. The first one, that that the onus machmas mamon is considered to be equal to coercion in other forms. A disputed point, and also one that probably also connects the question of how much, but at least in theory, so there is a view of Thrashba and others, that it is considered coercion, and that's something to worry about. Tano? The other one is self-imposed coercion. Okay, right. So even if you say that monetary coercion is not is called coercion, so they maybe think, okay, but that's when it's coming from someone else. But when it's coming from the individual's own decision, so own stenapsha, so maybe that's also considered a acceptable path. I should note also that the notion of onus denafshe, if you recall, when you saw the Gemara in Baba Basra, so it was brought up in that context because there the Gemara is going back and forth about trying to figure out if we say that if somebody is pressured to sell something, should that sale be effective? And it's in that context that the Gemara brings up the fact that maybe every sale is somewhat of an onus because perhaps the individual the owner, if he could, would rather hold on to his property forever, and he's only selling because of the financial pressure. But, uh, as we also noted, that that ultimately ends up being treated differently, and the Gemara considers at that point, so maybe still that's considered onse denafshe, because yes, the person feels pressure, but he's still deciding what to do about that pressure, and maybe that's also going to be different from other kinds of onsen. So this was a machlokis also about whether a self-imposed penalty should be considered problematic. And as we noted, we're not going to address that by dismissing those views, even if there's machlokis about them. But let's assume, l'chumra, that both premises are true, that financial pressure does consider, is considered pressure, and that even when it's self-imposed, it's still going to have that disqualifying impact. But 
as we noted, still, the prenup shouldn't be seen that way, and it should be seen as just the natural extension of continuing to be married. Hi. We've talked about, like, harnamas in the past and trying to get around talakos with, like, uh, like it's like, I always say it like this. Um, so, has there, like, been a discussion of, like, the fact that we're trying to get around, like, it's, so, like obviously, assuming it is a financial coercion, it's coercion, and self-most coercion uh, is, uh, is, is coercion, or assuming those two things, and we, we talked about yesterday also about the idea that maybe it's not really, um, it's not really a penalty, it's just this is the amount of money that you have to do, whatever. Do we, is there any to, to have a discussion around, like, we're trying to get a, around certain halakos by, like, using okay, these so, things? Okay, so I'll address that for a minute, because it's a crucially important point. Now, again, as we get on this topic, we'll, eventually we'll have to make time-saving decisions, but I was planning later on getting more into some of the other aspects that address this question, but just... We might as well address it while you bring it up, even though it's going to be a little bit disorganized. But it's, it's a crucially important point. So, first of all, let's ask the question a couple of ways. Right, so, this is... And this is something that I do think is important to address clearly. And especially, okay, we're approaching Pesach, and the Chiris Hametz is going to be on our minds, and we've spoken about that a few times, and we've spoken about Prisbol this year, and some of you came last week when we spoke about Tetariska and the like. And when you hear about a lot of these things, so often the reaction people have, understandably, is, well, Agunos are suffering terribly, and it seems like there are approaches to all of these issues, which don't seem to be as devastating. So how come you can't find a cure for the agunas? I was actually just uh, seeing an article about that just right before I came in just now, on an unrelated point that, that seemed to be making the same kind of argument. So it's a long answer. Why? Because a part of it is, when you see the sugis like Nechiris Hametz and Puzbol, so you see there's quite a complicated structure to each of them, and there are many component parts as to what works and what doesn't work. But also, to use a comparison from the world of medicine, so the diseases that get cured and the diseases that don't get cured are not only, and not even chiefly, going to be predicted based on how severe the disease is. That's certainly a part of the motivation to do something. But when one disease gets cured and the other one doesn't, so it's most likely going to connect to just whether the disease is curable and whether the medicines or treatments exist. So that's really the bigger issue here because we're talking about Ishasish, which has tremendous severity to it, and there's little that our system has that allows that to be weakened for a number of reasons. So the avenues towards addressing this in a way similar to Mechiris Hametz or Prozbol, it's not about taking the issue less seriously, it's about simply not so simply, but about basically the mechanics of what's going on and the challenge of being able to address that in an effective way, especially considering just how high the stakes are. So there's a lot more to say about that, but that's the one sentence reference to that. So I'm going to try to keep it somewhat focused, but uh, yeah? Oh, I think your reference just makes it all the more important to realize what a nace the vaccine for COVID is, because okay. of how severe it was and Correct. what it yeah, is today. That, that, that itself wouldn't have. But, there's a, but there is some point that clearly the fact that the whole world was suffering from that created a certain urgency, and the way the government addressed that also was was connected to that. So it's not irrelevant. You know, certainly when something is 
when something is highly problematic, so there is a degree of urgency that correlates that, but it won't necessarily mean that an answer is available. So that's also, for example, as Salvechik pointed out, as Rav often quotes, that the Gemara says that talking about the other kind of agunos when the husband is missing, it's a different kind of problem with the same reality, but it's caused by other issues. And in that context, the Gemara says that Mishumi Guna Hikulu Barabanan, that the rabbis worked to be makil because of the problem of Igun, and they came up with a system of accepting testimony with a lower threshold. So there, it was also because, as we discussed a little bit at the beginning of the year, the elements existed to be able to address that. And it depends how you ask the question, as we quote, uh, that it's like saying that uh, how did the Allies make a bomb during World War II? Well, they had to win the war, so they made a bomb. That's not going to answer the question. That's what they what was pushing them to work so hard to do that. But ultimately, if they didn't have the physics, then it wouldn't have worked. So these are parallel points which it's not irrelevant how severe an issue is, it's certainly relevant, but there's still the aspects of the mechanics and the details of the situation that are going to pose perhaps the most serious problem. Now, that being said, so it happens to be that Eric asked the question from a different direction. And so he wasn't asking, how come we can't come up with something, but isn't this too haromadic? So here, I think the point is, very much the opposite, but it's not so obvious, so I'm glad for the opportunity to be able to clarify it, that there have been over the years many attempts to address the Aguna issues, sometimes by very superior Tanar Chachamim, but still didn't necessarily end up coming to a conclusion. And a lot of them, they faced two hurdles. So first, like we said, just the details of halacha to be able to override the issue of ish is incredibly difficult. But also there is broader spirit of the law and structural considerations, i.e. that we do believe in marriage as a crucial institution for Klal Yisrael. And so a solution that would undermine the concept of marriage, such as conditional marriage or such as devices where a marriage could easily and unjustifiably be annulled by a third party. So that which would weaken the integrity of a marriage and the concept of marriage comes with a, a big price tag for the seabor as a whole. And that's a part of what's taken into consideration with all of these issues, and that's why we were like Prisbol, for example. So we were careful to point out that there's at least two components, or three, that had to be weighed. And the question of what would work halachically, the question of what was the need, which was also something that we had to analyze carefully, but also how was it integrated into the intention of the mitzvah to begin with. And when we learned Prisbol, so we saw ultimately that Prisbol was really driven by considerations that strengthened the mitzvah, even as it seemed like it was doing the opposite. So here, when it comes to addressing situations of marriage, so a part of the question is, what impact is the institution going to, is the device that you're considering going to have on the broader institution? So in this case, and I think it's a crucially important point, part of the beauty of the prenup is, and it's actually really relevant to the sugya also in its detail, that part of the beauty of the prenup is that not only have we found that it's effective and tremendously effective, 
but it is very harmonized with the spirit of the law as well because it doesn't function through any kind of a weakening of the structure of marriage or of the autonomies of the parties within the marriage, but it just emphasizes the aspects of the marriage. So the idea that the husband should be continuing to support his wife while they're married is a part of what marriage means. So what this does is it just makes it real and enforceable, which is at every point just a strengthening of the existing halachic points. And it actually goes in a more fundamental way to the nature of the issue. Because, as we've mentioned, so in the time of the Gemara, so there was a context for enforcement. So you could have situations that justified kfia, and then the Bezdin would be able to be kofa, and that would have resolved the issue. But in the modern context, so we don't usually have that kind of authority, that kind of impact. So to a certain extent, the issue is driven largely by Gaulus. It's driven largely by having a decentralized, scattered community without any kind of authority that can actually influence in a broad way. So a large impact of the prenup, especially if it's adopted widely and is advocated widely, is that it creates a communal structure that then can create an enforcement and make somewhat of a band-aid on the contemporary decentralized scattered Jewish community that doesn't have that power. So creating these enforcement mechanisms and also creating a society that encourages it and that upholds it and that is transmitting this mentality does a lot to really address the issue at its core in a way that is more harmonized with the intent of the Torah and more so than a lot of other suggestions that haven't necessarily had much of an impact. Hi. Like, maybe I'm misunderstood or taking it too far, but from what we've said, like, it seems like maybe not... It's like this really isn't a Gerishan device or like a Gerishan pusher. It's... Well, that's it's, certainly how it's... How, yeah, like, how, how it's, meaning, like, that might be the public misconception of it, but what it, like, truly is is an enforcement of the, like... Of the existing Of marriage. the existing marriage and obligations, so... Right, that's that's how... But, you know, again, this is the Kudus and Machlokis here. So how you perceive it yeah. is crucial, because that's going to rise or fall on that. So, but that is, I believe, first of all, why it works halachically, why it works letter of law, but also why, as far as the harama question, why it works very well spirit of the law also. It doesn't come to, like let's say, for example, that there was, we were able to restore the notion of Afkinu and Elio and were to tell us it works, and we were very confident that we have the ability to be Mafkia Kedushin. So then, okay, maybe that would work the letter of the law, but it still would disturb the basic connection between the spouses. So here, this not only we believe is effective halachically, but it also is very much in harmony with the spirit of the law. So from all of the discussions about harama, you're well positioned to understand why this is not a problematic harama, and also why some of the challenges that exist are there in relation to a lot of the other issues. So that being the case, so it does this last point, it does rise or fall on that. So is this a get pusher or is this a marriage enforcer? So it is phrased, a good helpful language, so it's phrased as a marriage enforcer. 
And that is what makes all the difference. So Rav Sterbuch, in his opposition, so he is arguing that it's a get-pusher. And some of that just comes from cultural perception, the question of whether the monetary sum that's involved, does that actually correlate to real-life sustenance needs? And of course, the issue in Harnof is going to be very different than in uh, Woodmere. So that's uh, a part of it. But also, understanding how it's framed is going to be very crucial. Hi. Um, those who, like Rav Schirmbach, who hold that there are problems, how fundamental do they hold these? Like, are like they, they have hesitations and prefer not? Do they think that children so, are mamzerim if they're born out of... So what would actually happen in terms of the children? I wouldn't want to speculate, but certainly the way he phrases it, he certainly phrases it very absolutely. That this is uh, an absolute problem. So there are those who will be somewhere in the middle. Everyone's going to have their own particular view, but there are definitely those who speak about it in uh, a very harsh way. And uh, our response has been that it seems like there is a fundamental misappreciation of what it is. So a part of what we brought yesterday in order to make this point is that the primary authors of the prenup were for the will of together with so a big point of what we were discussing yesterday is a position of Reb Zalman to explain the conclusion, it seems to be his conclusion, that a get that comes from Onis Danafshe is no good. A get that comes from one's own pre-committed arrangement is going to be disqualified. So that all the more so should be taken as an indication that it's certainly not meant to be a penalty, the prenup, because here the author of the prenup is telling you that a self-imposed penalty would not be good. And what we were doing yesterday was to explain why that is. And in that context, so we saw he made basically two points, and the first point seems to go in the other direction, so we have to ultimately understand how they all come together. That basically he's saying that what somebody chooses to do, even if it comes with a certain degree of coercion, but it's not with a gun to his head, is considered to be their own action. And the opening comparison was the two halachos in Halachas Yisodi HaTorah, where the Rambam says that if somebody has a gun to your head and says, worship of Ozara, so you're not supposed to do it. But if you do it, you're a potter from an onish, because that's still called onus even if the halacha doesn't endorse that conclusion. But once it's done, it's still called an ones because it was at somebody else's compulsion. Yeah. I don't... I, like, maybe this is too... No, too off-topic, but I don't... Like, ones, like, in... Like, in, like... Instead, yeah. I'm saying, like, why... If there's no... Like, why should you be... If it's ones, then, like, you shouldn't be culpable at all. Like, it seems... Yeah, that that is his conclusion. I'm saying, but even like, even like when you go to Shemai, like when, well, like the, and then like what's what's the point of the iser if if you're not if you're not culpable? Well, because I don't know if that's necessarily true of Shemaya, but as far as Bezdin's going to look at it, that I mean, it's interesting. The truth is, the logic once we're saying that that's called Anas, so then why should Klape Shemaya not be the case? So that's an important question. We're not sure how to clarify that. But as far as Besdin, so Besdin will consider the bonus, <coughs> even though it was the wrong call. But at the end of the day, it's still a call that's coming under coercion. Hi. 
First of all, Hashem, um, and to, I guess piggyback off of that, Hashem knows if it's really onus or not onus. That's not something that humans can judge. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, there could, even though in the case of an onus, there is a moral right and wrong, but also an understandability if that is violated. Okay. If that is gone against, if the, if the objective moral thing is gone against for another value, which is the value of life. Okay. So, we'll have to see so it seems even, especially from the Rambam, that there is, that even if it's not the correct thing to do, there is an understanding of that. But, still, it's a different thing if he chooses to heal his disease through a Vodazar. And there he is going right. to be liable. So, even though they seem like they're the same thing, they're both decisions made under the threat of death. So, the point is, there's still a difference. That if somebody is forcing you to do this or I'll kill you, so then it's their Ratzon that is guiding it, and you are just the tool. But, if you have a crisis, and you look to solve your crisis through a certain path, so as much as you may not find any other choices, but still, that's considered to be your decision. And there are various other proofs of this. I gave you some uh, sources to look at. For example, is the Gemara and Kedushin, that if a woman is being chased by an animal, and the only way she can find her a, a hero to save her is by agreeing to let this man marry her, so that's considered to be a valid Kedushin. So we don't call that onus. We don't say, well, it was life or death, so she basically had a gun to her head and when she agreed to marry him. No, even if she was still worried about being eaten by this animal, but this was a decision she makes in order to solve an external problem. So we don't consider that action to be an onus. So all of that would lead you to say that, okay, so then if a person commits initially to get divorced, even if he doesn't feel like it now, but that was his choice earlier, and he decides, therefore, that that should be what he's going to do, that should count, that should be his ratzon. So all of that would point you in the direction to say, honest enough, she should be okay, which we said we're not going to take that position, we're going to respect the Chum review here. So, it's just, you know, it's also fascinating that some of the objections to the prenup are articulated better than others, some just kind of baffle me. So one that I saw, one of the signers on an objection said, it's all coerced because since the guy knows that the girl's not going to marry him unless he signs the prenup, or the Messiah Kedushin is not going to be involved when he signs the prenup, so therefore it's under coercion. That I really don't understand, because then you could validate every transaction anyone ever makes. You know, that, uh, yeah, he paid for this car, but he knew you weren't going to give him the car unless he paid for it, so therefore he only paid under coercion. I mean, that's, that should be very clearly a knowing, choosing interaction. But in any event, so what we're saying so far should seem to point to the view that onus, that's self-imposed, should work. So here's where it goes in the other direction. So what Rabzam Dechemi explains is that there's two parts here. That there is, when we're looking at Ratzon, so we sometimes are looking at Ratzon to do a certain action, and sometimes we're looking at Ratzon to bring about a certain result. And it seems like when we're talking about Gittin, we need both. So he needs to know that he's doing this action and to decide to. But also the Ratzon that the Torah requires is about being divorced, not about giving a get. And the truth is, as we're kind of adding to this, that doesn't that sound like the Rambam's Lashon in the first Halacha in Halacha's Gerishon? Because right, he connects the din of Ratzon to the Pasuk. Now, it's not 100% clear, but it sounds like the language of the Pasuk that he's 
building off of is right? So what's that about? So it means that it's his ratzon to not continue married, continue being married to her, not to give a get. So therefore, this is going to come out that even if you were to say, okay, the person forcing him to write the get is him, so it's considered to be his decision, but yes, it's his decision to write the get, but he still doesn't have the ratzon to get divorced. So therefore, that's still going to be lacking in ratzon, and that's the problem. Hi. Um, if, and I know this is a bit of a dangerous question, but if, God forbid, God forbid there's a terrible situation, and a husband is causing his wife to become an aguna, and it's really bad, and they want to get divorced, then why can't the bait, um, and he's just refusing to give a get, um, then why can't the bait dean just put him on trial and have him questioned and ask, is it your ratzon to get divorced? And if he says yes, then <coughs> so essentially well, forced to get to be given. Or if he says no, he'll say no. Yeah, he'll say yeah. no. But even if you force him to say yes, so then if it's, if it's one, of the, one of the situations where fee is justified, but then in America, you're not going to have the tools to actually make that happen. So all of that ends up having obstacles. But, it, well, but if, if, he, if he said yes, he would just do it. Right. So he, if, if he, he said yes to wanting to get divorced, even though it, it, they don't mention the gap. If they say yes to him wanting to get divorced, isn't that enough of a red zone so to force? So Ramosha considered that. He's not ready to decide that practically because that's a big jump. But that's essentially... And that's why I said it's a dangerous question. We're saying he promised to tell the truth? So Ramosha said... I think you're saying a little bit more than that, though. Saying another you're still step. going to need a get to be given. So you have no way to make that actually happen in America. Right, but essentially, right. once he says yes, then that is his defined... Right, so he still has to get And therefore, you have to essentially squeeze the get out of him. But in America, you have no way to do that. I don't understand how that pragmatically would ever happen. It can't. That's the problem. No, but it would get rid of the issue of Ratzon. But it wouldn't have a get, though, so that would, that would be a fatal problem. Right, that's still an issue. Right, so, but essentially, that's what Ramosha, at least theoretically, is articulating. That, and I keep emphasizing the theoretically, theory. that if there's a desire to get divorced, but he's holding out with a get for some side reason, so then he thought that conceptually it makes sense he should be able to be kofa on that because the ratzon is still there. So that's uh, an interesting position, but that's the flip side of what Rav Zalman is saying. He's saying that there's two parts. There is the das on the ma'isa, which we'll also call ratzon maybe, but there is the ratzon on the reality, the ratzon on the result of being divorced. So in Ramosha's case, you have the ratzon to be divorced without the willingness to give the get. And in the case of somebody who is coming from his own pre-commitment, so then, yes, maybe that could be called ratzon on the get, but it's without the ratzon on the divorce, so it's still going to be missing something crucial. Uh, just before we run out of time, I'll just mention, there's an interesting question to ask here. Again, I don't know if you could make any conclusions, just speaking strictly theoretically. So we'll see, we haven't yet seen other views, that the Rambam's position is not the only explanation here. And not everyone agrees with the Rambam, and not everyone accepts the explanation. Last week we talked a little bit about the Chavosiyar briefly, but there are others also, the other Rishonim, who have different views. But just really speculating, it's interesting that I wonder if, once the Rambam says that when it's a real mitzvah Garish, then you can say that his... Ratzon HaPnimi is to do this, that the Pintu Yid is to go ahead with this. So, could you argue 
that uh, kind of pre-commitment, even if it was a knas, that maybe, all the more so, that establish it. Or maybe it's an extra sniff for that, because we know, for example, modern psychology and habit books and the like talk about the power of pre-commitment, that very often a person is worried that they'll be weak in the moment, or they have a habit that they want to change, or maybe an addiction, whatever it is, and therefore they take steps in advance to close off their options later so that they'll be able to carry through. So there, it's interesting that the dynamic is essentially exactly what the Rambam is describing when he talks about kfiyah, that uh, here they'll tell you out loud that the inner self wants to do something, but the Yetzirah is getting in the way. So the way they're addressing that is by committing themselves in advance so that their options will be reduced later. So it's just interesting to compare that even if a prenup kind of situation was a self-imposed penalty from before, but it may graph on very well to what the Rambam, Rambam is describing, that here you know he's making it clear that the true him wants to do something a certain way, but now, so it's like imagine a person when they're getting married, so then they're able to be clear and say, okay, I never want to be in a position where I'm exploiting or harassing my spouse, so I'm making public my declaration of how I want it to be. And then, years later, when unfortunately things have deteriorated and there's all kinds of history and there's all kinds of negativity and they're having a hard time getting past that, but maybe that's very comparable to what the Rambam describes about the Yitzhahara getting in the way, and therefore the pre-commitment strategy might fit into that model, so something to consider. Ezra? What's the difference between the pre-commitment model and the pre-commitment the pre, the pre model? Well, it is, it is the same thing, but the question is what the fear, the objectives say, that you're committing to a knas, and therefore the knas is forcing you to do something you don't want to do. So even though it was you who made that commitment, the earlier you, but still, the present you who doesn't want to do it is being forced by the earlier you. And that's coercion. So how does Zalman Nechemia Goldberg say that that's Oni's, but the prenup is... No, because he doesn't think it's a knas. The pre, meaning the yeah. pre-arranged... If it was a knas. You're arranging it as a knas. Correct. If, if it was a knas, if the point of the prenup was, okay, we're going to take away your money until you agree to do this, so then yes, that would be a problem. But that's not what's happening. Okay. And part of the proof that it's not what's happening is they're saying that the author of that document himself writes that if it was a knas, even a self-imposed knas, you'd have a problem. Or at least as far as... I mean, the truth is he's focusing more on onus in general, not necessarily monetary onus, but let's assume that monetary onus would be included in that. Hi. Um, I forgot my question. Okay, well, I don't want to... Oh, I was, what I was going to say is that also, when the person has to, to sign something like this, a halakhic prenup or something similar, doesn't it also, or any sort of pre-commitment, doesn't it have to be them signing a clear-headed, con- seriously considering the possibility? Yeah, that they're clear-headed then. But then they're, they're no, but if they're thinking, oh, well, this will never really happen, so I'll just sign my oh, name okay. off. All right, so that actually is another issue that's raised. I don't want to be honest, people not to be able to have lunch. So I'll just say, uh, maybe we'll bring it up tomorrow because it is an issue. Uh, there's an answer to the issue, but uh, there are those who say that because the people signing it never actually think it's going to come to fruition, so then that undermines from the perspective of what's called asmachta. So there's an answer to that, but 
true, there is an objection raised on those levels, and maybe we'll try to say a word or two about that tomorrow. All right, everyone should have a wonderful Yom Shabbat Kotov, and if you like to know, you should enjoy it, but you're very interested in